many of their, their patients that are receiving just symptomatic therapy don't do well. Right. And we need to change that, the address that. That was also the goal of my father. Do not, he always said, if you only treat the symptom, the patient is going to uh, have a recurrence. You, we need to address, that's what our therapy with using insulin does. It addresses the root, it addresses the problem, because it's not the traditional uh, oncologists just give chemotherapy, which are good drugs. Um, we just need to know how to use them better. Welcome to the Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast. This podcast is your resource for a scientific-based discussion of all things cancer and beyond from a natural, holistic, and integrative perspective. It's time to teach the body how to heal. So here we go. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear here, again with one of our pioneers, but this one is so unique because it's a legacy of pioneers, Dr. Donato Perez Garcia. And we've just in episode one been talking about his grandfather. And now what we're going to do in part two of this three-part series is we're going to talk about your father. So again, welcome back, Dr. Donato. Thank you. Gracias, Nathan. Yes. I'm uh, very happy to be sharing some of uh, what I uh, know uh, about the history of my grandfather and my father. Now back to my father. Yeah. He joined uh, my grandfather in the uh, mid-50s. And the first uh, among the first uh, uh, things that uh, he started to treat was this viral disease. Uh, the polio outbreak. The polio is a viral disease that affects the motor uh, abilities of uh, the uh, infected uh, people by uh, decreasing uh, the, uh, the nerves, affecting really the nerves that end up disturbing the mobility with uh, uh, people. And it was very common in children. And today, I think there's a lot of um, historical disconnect because today people know of polio just, they've heard the word and they know there's a vaccine associated with it, but they don't understand the you know morbidity, the damage that was done by that virus, the basically incapacitation where kids could no longer walk. Um, and they even, that's where the iron lung came from, right? To help people breathe. So it left people completely incapacitated. So your grandfather and your father, through the use of IPT, they were really going after a disease, an infectious disease state that not only killed many, but it left many who survived just their bodies just brutalized. Yes, certainly the children that were brought to them were children that were starting to develop the symptoms. There At that time, there was, there was no diagnostic test that could be done on blood. It was just uh, a symptomatic diagnosis. No diagnostic code. <laughs> also that. <laughs> and uh, treatment was mostly physical uh, therapy to help uh, the children keep the movements. Mm. They even, my father even helped uh, my grandfather by making a film uh, it was in eight millimeters, black and white. I have the the film, and uh, at some point he tried to show the film uh, as an evidence of how the children arrived and how the children, in a couple of days, they started to have improvement instead of being uh, in in the bed for several days. So that was the beginnings, uh, helping my grandfather to treat the, the children using insulin and the medications available that. Certainly one of the medications that I read in the year writing was methylene blue. Mm -hmm. They used that as part of, uh, of the program uh, to address uh, this uh, condition. So then my father started to notice that uh, he knew that because uh, they were leaving uh, the, the clinic and the house was in the same building. So my father was used to hearing the critics and the comments expressed by the doctors and authorities about uh, them. 
So he knew what uh, he was going to uh, fight. But he followed the footsteps of uh, my grandfather and he continued with the, with the work and supporting. The next thing he decided to do was to do some uh, research. At that time, there was how to do research in the 50s. The recipe was hired a chemist, uh, get some uh, uh, machines to measure uh, oxygen, uh, hemoglobin, uh, pH, etc. Get some animals uh, that were part of uh, the research. And that's what uh, they did. They... um, change one of the areas of uh, the clinic in, uh, into a lab for doing research uh, with the help of uh, a chemist, which, by the way, two years ago, the girl who helped my father and my grandfather to do all the, the tests and validate the results She's still alive. She lives in Central America, and she sent me um, a message through uh, Facebook Messenger, and she said, I have a lot of information about the work I did with your father and grandfather, about all the research that we did, first with the uh, animals, and then on uh, the patients, they were drawing the blood and checking for oxygen, etc., that was done in-house, and the results were published in-house. So he ended up self-producing several uh, booklets about his findings. But with um, people didn't want the books. They, there was no interest on They didn't want the new information. All right. But then my father decided, okay, what I should be doing is have my uh, secretary get the phone numbers of the uh, U.S. Embassy, of the German Embassy, of the several diplomatic uh, uh, embassies in Mexico City, and they contacted the uh, uh, head of the health or the representative of the health minister from that country, and then they dropped all of these uh, booklets with research. He also did that with Uh, pharmaceutical companies from the States and from from Europe, mainly Switzerland. So he was giving all these booklets in in Spanish. Uh, At that time, um, I was born in 1958, so the years before my father and my grandfather were producing all of this uh, homemade research about their findings. They had the support at one time or several times from MD Anderson Research Center from uh, Houston, Texas. Yeah, the U.S. Two of the uh, director, Dr. Charles Lemaitre, and then he's the vice president, Dr. Anthony Mastromarino, uh, because... At one time, my father decided, I'm going to give this to M.D. Anderson. And uh, the books are in the library of uh, many hospitals and universities in the States. Uh, I got to meet uh, Dr. Mastro Marino later. Uh, but the M.D. Anderson decided at one time their used machines uh, give them to these two Mexican doctors. They, they are doing some research on, on cancer. Let's see what they... So they started to do that. So my father started to do that um, uh, job of collecting data, creating data with the help, basic help, because there was no one saying, okay, here you have $1 to do this. It was their own money, money that was uh, from their uh, work, that they started to say, okay, we need research, we're going to do research. And it was in a limited way because doing research is expensive. But he did it, and he did a lot of uh, research, basic research, 
wrote them in uh, Spanish, and then started to distribute that. Healer, teacher, and researcher. So it's something that your grandfather passed on those same principles to your father. Right. About insulin-potentiated therapy, or IPT. But so much of this in the early stages was about infectious disease. But you kind of mentioned that just a little bit. There was a, a transition to looking at things outside of infectious disease, that's cancer. And what's interesting is the World Health Organization actually says that up to 20 to 25% of all cancers are caused, not associated with, but caused by infectious disease. So in many ways, the work for cancer was being laid by the work that they were doing in infectious disease. And we all know that H. pylori is a bacteria that causes gastric cancer. Okay. So now making a trip back in time. Yeah. Uh, we'll be going back to 1946. Okay. Uh, that time it was only my grandfather in uh, Mexico with his office and also with uh, work at the Central Military Hospital. One of his uh, chiefs in the army, a high-ranking officer, had a daughter that was going to get married and she was 22 years old. But she had, uh, she was recently diagnosed in that time. They uh, they were making diagnosis of cancer by uh, a biopsy. So it was confirmed that uh, the girl had a tumor, a, mal- a, a cancer tumor. Uh, but uh, she was about to get married. So it was uh, kind of a, a problem saying she's going to get married but uh, she is going to have a mastectomy. And so the general says, okay, I need you that, uh, what can you do? So this uh, 22-year-old girl was uh, treated successfully uh, in 1946. At that time, there were uh, the first uh, chemotherapeutic agents uh, cyclophosphamide and then mostaza nitrogenada that were used intravenously. Uh, it was a small tumor in the breast that responded very good to the treatment because it's not only administering the primary drugs, chemo drugs, but they used to give another drugs to help the liver, protect the liver, to help the immune system, using the substances of uh, that time. At that time, they included liver extract. So it was a set of of medications that were used. The girl got married, the girl had children, and the girl survived for many, many, many years. So that was how they entered into the world of uh, cancer patients. In the 1940s? Yes, 46. So, wow. So, and really, that was the beginning of the modern kind of conventional war on cancer that includes the body. Did they use full-dose chemo at that time, or were they, no. did they use a lower dose like what they did with infectious disease, with syphilis? They, he was always using less mm-hmm. because the, uh, he understood that insulin was facilitating the entrance, so the need for... Uh, bigger doses was not uh, important. So from the very beginning, he started to use a reduced dose. Remember, 1946, there was no Dinah Farber Institute. There was no Dr. Uh, Farber, who was the uh, the father of today's uh, oncology. There was no oncology in 1946, okay? And there, they were starting to see uh, because of the use of these uh, substances during the war, that uh, the effects of these medications, so they decided to use against tumor. Cancer is a disease that's been around with humanity since the very, very beginning. That's right. So that's how he entered. There was no evidence of doing that. He was a few years ahead of oncology and, and treated that. And that's how he entered that in the in '46. And it's really interesting because when you look at the treatment of syphilis, arsenic and mercury, both toxins, but he came in with insulin and that allowed him to lower the dose 
mm-hmm. and improve cell recovery, healing. Then he took the same concept and bridged that to cancer, where you, you correctly say that basically when you look at chemotherapy, it's born out of war. I mean, and this is documented in the literature. They called it Little Pearl Harbor, mm-hmm. where there was a bombing by the Nazis against the Allies in the Mediterranean. And there was some you know, transportation of chemical warfare agents that was spread. And from that standpoint and the destruction and disease that occurred and deaths that occurred from that, from secondary exposure, that then brought forward the research at Fort Detrick in Maryland, Sloan Kettering coming together to provide the first research around chemo. So basically you go from, you know, war department to the medical department but the same concept, the thinking that your grandfather brought, he brought into cancer, which is, I'm going to deliver with insulin a lower dose of this toxin and preserve the cell and heal the cancer, heal the body as I eliminate the cancer. So, so he, from, he basically just, he proved his theory with infectious disease, and now he's just carrying it on to another disease that's cancer. And in today's cancer treatment is symptomatic. We don't treat the root. We don't treat the cause. Okay, there are, and sometimes it's needed that uh, they use uh, some of this symptomatic, whether surgery that uh, is now being started to being replaced by ablation in some cases. Surgery will not disappear. But what we need to do is to evolve and use we cannot depend on living just on eating mangoes. Okay, our therapeutic approach should be in an integral approach, That's correct. and we need to see. Okay, this patient is going to need this procedure, but first, to start to address the root of the disease. That's what uh, I learned from my father, and saying, if the patient wants to do uh, an invasive procedure like a surgical remove. First, change the chemical conditions of the terrain that contributed to the development of cancer. Because once you do first remove the symptom, which is the tumor, and don't do anything to address the cause, the tumor most likely will return because the cancer has not been addressed. So he did that from the beginning. He addressed the cause of the disease by allowing the entrance of the chemo drugs to heal the cell. At that time, these chemo agents, what they do is destroy the cancer cells. The cancer cells, they are in a, they are a factory that they are producing a lot of chemicals to make the, their neighbors uh, work wrong. And that's how the cancer starts to spread making alterations in the chemicals, which end up being an alteration in the DNA, which is protected in the nucleus of the cell. So that is how cancer starts to to work and then builds a shield, a biofilm or a shield that starts to say to the body, don't come here. We are just having a problem. uh, And what we need from you is help us repair what is happening to here. So the, the cancer is tricking the information so the body instead of sending the white cells that are needed to eat they are sending all the equipment to repair so the cancer builds this protection around and continues to grow and it is cell protected yeah cancer is really interesting it's mass communication and i want to get back to your father in just a second but it's such mass miscommunication that is on a global scale. You know, you talked about the immune system and that is so spot on because it's really interesting when you look at the immune system, what happens is as the cancer is working to repair and the cancer has actually been called or referred to as the wound that never heals. But as it's trying to heal, it draws the immune system to itself and then it, it can turn the immune system on the immune system. I mean, what we're starting to understand and discover about cancer is just amazing. But yet your father, your grandfather were working there long before the science that we have today mm-hmm. to, fo- to focus on healing. And you're right that conventional medicine, what I tell people is this, you know, from the conventional world, they look at the integrative world. 
And they think that we would tell somebody, if you break a hip, go take more vitamin D. But we would obviously tell them, no, you need to surgically repair that hip. But now what we'll do is we'll help you heal faster, better, stronger. And so there's a miscommunication in in the medicine world, in the different camps in medicine world, really, in a lot of ways, in the ways that there's miscommunication in cancer. And so when you look at business, when you look at what we're trying to do with this podcast here with you telling your story, is we're trying to clear the communication and say, let's communicate properly here and let's actually lay the correct story of what's happening. And so before we get back to your uh, father here, you mentioned integrative. That word actually comes from a Latin word, integration, it means to make whole. So what your grandfather and your father were doing with IPT was they were making whole these cells. They were helping to make whole these individuals. And so I think that's a good point to bring your your father in there. But, you know, because your father really took the baton of what your grandfather started. And it really sounded like he was he was as much a just stubborn person <laughs> like your grandfather was. He just took that baton and he just kept pushing forward, did he not? He never stopped yeah. because of his training, uh, his uh, personality being trained in the army. All his uh, background when he started as a young uh, uh, man in the army going to help. I, I'm proud, yes, I'm proud of uh, knowing be. what he did. But uh, when I think, okay, how easy it is for a doctor, well, for a person being in the middle of the war and seeing someone screaming for pain with a wound and blood, not many people are saying, here, I don't know nothing, but I'm here to help. Mm-hmm. And he helped in a way that comforted uh, the, the patient. So that was his uh, personality that he constructed and continued all his life, even against all the critics that he received. And that was transferred to my father. My father, he definitely... Uh, he was all his life under his uh, care. So he understood my my grandfather a lot for his fight. When my father decided to be a medical doctor, definitely he faced uh, several uh, critics within uh, the medical school, but he continued and he finished. Uh, there was um, an anecdote also of my father and my grandfather they uh, treated uh, uh, an anchor or a reporter, very famous in Mexico City. Uh, this reporter owned a magazine that was uh, a very political magazine. And uh, this uh, Mr. Uh, Regino Hernandez had a disease that was considered incurable. And uh, the doctors who saw him said, oh, there is nothing that we can do because you have an aortic aneurysm. Um, and uh, I'm saying this because uh, there is a letter of um, that I have that he displayed his personal uh, problem. Uh, but the doctors in uh, the cardiologists that were seeing him said, oh, you should go out and, and go to sea level because there is a risk of uh, you dying because the aneurysms could uh, break and there is nothing that we can do. That was in the uh, early 60s. Then this this, uh, person decided, oh, I know a doctor. And uh, the other uh, workers at the magazine say, we know a doctor who may be able to help you, uh, Dr. Donato and so on. So they took him. he was treated and the aneurysm result. Certainly it was not a big aneurysm, but it was something that allowed him to do his life, but it was a risk. Mm -hmm. And it was treated and uh, because the aneurysm was caused by a bacterial infection, it was addressed as a bacterial problem. And the body does marvelous things when it comes to heal. So then he proved he went back to the cardiologist and said, well, I've been living here in Mexico City for uh, eight months 
And I want that you check me because I went to see this Dr. Donato. And they say, oh, how can you do that? How can you go and see these doctors who are charlatanes? They just took your money. And they said, okay, so they send it to the x-ray department, took the x-ray. And when they saw the x-rays, only one of the doctors says, who did this? I want to meet this doctor. The director and the other uh, doctor um, did not do anything because they were just uh, astonished of seeing that uh, nine months ago there was an aneurysm and today they, the aneurysm was uh, healed. Wow. Only one doctor got interested in doing that, uh, for treating that. So that is how my father started to treat. They treated in the time of my uh, grandfather, <clears throat> mostly of the patients were from the army. When my father joined, certainly the boys uh, <clears throat> was uh, already spread with uh, the uh, people in the city. So many people knew they were doing some uh, articles in the magazines about uh, their findings, about treating uh, many diseases that my father and my grandfather were doing. So there was uh, information in not uh, medical magazines. So many people started to go. Public figures, artists, uh, politicians. I got to meet a few famous Mexican artists when I was uh, young. Mm -hmm. uh, but that was how my father started. And among the many things that he did by giving away these uh, books was the ones that he gave to M.D. Anderson. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> they gave him in the 60s and the 70s. And they still have those booklets. Yes. It ended up then when the U.S. Congress in, 19, uh, in 1994... Uh, created the Office for Complementary and Alternative Medicines. Um, they, they did a good uh, research on all therapies that uh, they knew from around the world. And insulin potentiation therapy was included. Yeah. I received the visit of uh, one of the, uh, a, a doctor, Miriam Richardson, who used to work in that office, because they wanted to gather uh, the information. So she visited me and many, probably hundreds of uh, other offices to gather all the information. And that was the result of uh, all the effort of my father giving away these uh, booklets to MD Anderson. Uh, so eventually, also when Dr. Air, a Canadian uh, doctor, joined in uh, 1980. In 1977, he was formally working and writing um, articles about IPT and finding the your, connection that's your with father. my father. Okay, you're talking about Dr. Ayer writing with your father? With my father. Okay. Yeah. Dr. Ayer in, uh, first in Toronto, then he moved to uh, Illinois. Okay. <clears throat> and Dr. Ayer was trying to find an article that could make a link for non-diabetic uses of insulin. So it was until 1981 or 82 that the University of uh, Georgetown uh, released an article on uh, how uh, insulin potentiated the effects of a metrotexate in a series. It was conducted by, among of them, a very famous uh, researcher, Dr. Barbara von der Haar, mm -hmm. who wrote that uh, they, they just submitted that, yes, insulin potentiates the effects. A methotrexate, a chemotherapeutic. Right. Yes. So that was all uh, the results that my father contributed for the initial uh, steps in spreading the word about IPT with other doctors. Certainly, Doctors outside of uh, Mexico were curious about what uh, was going. Uh, 
um, the history behind uh, Dr. Ayer's involvement was um, mm, there was a priest uh, in Mexico City that uh, also was part of the religious uh, services that the U.S. Embassy offered in, in, in the premises of uh, the embassy. <clears throat> I found some things about uh, uh, that later. So this priest uh, was also doing missionary work in one of the poor communities in Mexico City. The priest got some uh, uh, gastrointestinal problem, and the people there said, oh, we know a doctor who can, who we can take the priest uh, to see. And they took to, to my father clinic. And then he was treated by my, my father. The priest uh, recovered. And the priest got interested because during the time that he went to receive his treatment, he saw other people uh, having among uh, them cancer problems. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> At one time, several uh, years uh, later, there was a Canadian nun that for some reason was also working in the same uh, parish that uh, the uh, U.S. priest was working. And they, she talked about the recently diagnosed problem of her sister in Montreal of uh, an ovarian cancer and that uh, because it was not a very serious or very big uh, problem but uh, she was going to she needed to wait like three or four months before getting to see the doctor so the priest said oh why don't you bring your sister because i know a doctor that i have seen that he has treated uh, patients mexican patients uh, for cancer and they Many of them got well. So that's how the Canadian doctor got involved. The, the nun called her sister. The sister said, what do I have to lose? I have three or four months before getting the standard therapy, so I will go and see the, this doctor Donato in Mexico City. And that was the beginning of a series of patients in stage three or stage four, flying to Mexico City, probably it was the first doctor that started medical tourism from uh, Canada, my father, uh, I don't know, but uh, that was in the 70s. Uh, and Canadian patients started to go there. Some with, uh, with um, they were in very poor condition. Among four or five of them were seeing by uh, the clinic, we're seeing at Clinic Air in Canada, okay. in Montreal, Montreal, I think it was the location, where the father of Dr. Stephen Air and him, they were taking care of these patients, doing the best they could. But when some of the patients returned from Mexico and Dr. Air so okay, I, I thought that... Uh, you had a complication and did not make it. And then they saw that one of the patients returned even walking. He got interested. I want to meet the doctor who did this. This was a Canadian uh, uh, patient that was flew in, a, in an ambulance in a stretcher because it was very, the cancer was very advanced after uh, two or three months in Mexico, he returned walking and went to visit the air clinic. And that's how Dr. Air got involved in 1975. You know, it's re really, really interesting about that. Well, there's a lot of things. First of all, the title of your book could be, I Know a Doctor, <laughs> the legacy of your family, because it really sounds like that was kind of the thing that connected a lot of people together. But, you know, when you look at the infectious disease really a lot of what your grandfather did. And then your father continued that, but really it seemed like it took a change or pivot and it, it coursed into a lot of cancer things. And if you look at history, that's what we saw. Early 20th century infectious disease was a big part of morbidity and mortality. 
And as we move through the 20th century, cancer became a bigger and bigger problem as we got a better handle on infectious disease for, for because of other reasons. But then IPT really translated into the cancer and your, your father took all of the great work that your grandfather did, but then really fine-tuned it and disseminated it to other doctors. So by other patients heard about it, they would go to your father and they would see the results and they would then return to their doctors and the doctors would say, what is this? So it's not just the disseminated of his dissemination of his booklets, but it was the dissemination of the work. And it reminds me of a patient that we had. She was actually from Abu Dhabi and she was diagnosed at the time that I saw her uh, five years previous with stage four colorectal cancer. And like you said, most of the patients that we see, they're advanced, they're recurrent. They are the worst of the worst. And so every year, because her oncologist told her, you won't be alive for three months. Mm -hmm. So every year, her one-year anniversary, she would go back to the hallways of that clinic to walk the hallways until that oncologist would see her. And that first year, the oncologist saw her and couldn't believe it and said, I thought you had passed. But then she kept going back and he would refuse to talk to her. <laughs> he would go away. But it, it highlights two different things. Some doctors are going to look at that and say, I don't want to know anything about that. But what you're presenting there is how your father was persistent in connecting with doctors that go, I don't understand that, but I want to learn more. And he really helped them in that endeavor. And I think that is a tremendous testament to your father is not just disseminating the information, but help activating other doctors to also activate their practice and disseminate it to patients. But at that time, the interest of uh, doctors uh, is not compared to what I started to see. Few doctors in the time of my father got the curiosity of uh, asking what uh, he was doing. Most likely, probably, you uh, decided to dig a little more on IPT because of Annie Brandt. Yes. Well, she was given less than three months to live. And she found a doctor and she went to see me and uh, you know the rest. Yeah, yeah. She's, she did it great, but that's how you started into this because of a patient had yeah. three months to live and I take care of her and there was a remission. Uh, and with that, the interest of doctor has grown, but yeah. that will talk about uh, when we reach to chapter three. That's right. <laughs> so back to the time of uh, my father. He, uh, because of his stubbornness also in saying, okay, yes, we know we are charlatans. Yes, we know that no none of the doctors here and everywhere are interested. But what we know is that a patient comes from one of these uh, offices that has been declare we cannot do anything else for you and we recover that patient and that patient goes out at the end of the series of treatment walking feeling good and in in a few cases because as you were saying most of the cases are stage three or stage four uh, but uh, the few that i have received in earlier stages they have a recovery yeah and when the patients ask me how many more years i ask them Do you believe that in 2022, I received more calls from many patients saying, I was treated by your grandfather. I was treated by your father. Wow. My father died in 2000. My grandfather in 1971. So it's more than five, two years survival or five years yeah. survival. Yeah, conventional medicine uses that five-year yeah. mark. Uh -huh. You're, we're talking decades. about... 30 or more years of survival. That's true healing. Yes. That's not remission. That's that's healing. Yes. Uh, and the last year was amazing by the number of uh, patients that were treated by my grandfather or my father. 
and back. That is because he was stubborn. He was decided. He was decided, okay, we don't have, we ask for funds. Nobody has given a dime or a coin so we can pay the two chemists and uh, the people that they hired to do this research. Well, even the, the girl um, that worked and conducted all the research, she contacted me last year yeah. and, and said a lot of uh, stories about how stubborn was my father on continuing uh, spreading the work and doing that because he knew nobody is going to listen, but I want to do it. I need to do it. And patients were healing and were feeling good and better. Even when a patient has a few days and cannot drink a cup of coffee, and they say, one, one morning I have had patients that after a few weeks, they say, doctor, can I have a cup of coffee? Immediately the family members, no, don't drink coffee. It's bad for your uh, gastric cancer. I just say, why not? He's been out of coffee for six months. He's been resting on the bed. Don't you see that he decided to wake up, go to the restroom, empty his bladder, and he comes out of the toilet and say, Doctor, can I have a cup of coffee? Bring him a cup of coffee. It's one of his pleasures. That's right. The pleasure is going to change the brain and change the way he feels. Why don't we feel good for a couple of hours? You know, the stubbornness, I always tell our patients that stubbornness is not a bad thing. It's a good attribute. And you see that in your grandfather and you see that in your father. But when patients are stubborn in that they want to find healing, they, they, they seek it out and they will continue in it. But your the stubbornness of, of your family's legacy, I think, has really empowered patients, what you talked about there, in their cancer treatment is actually to be able to live as they heal. When you look at a lot of conventional medical treatment, the way cancer is approached today, I don't think you can really ascribe living as a part of that treatment process. I don't think you can describe it as healing either, but you know, when you look at conventional full-dose chemotherapy, maximum tolerate dose chemotherapy, and the you know, sequelae and the morbidity and the issues associated with it, I don't think you can ascribe living to that. And that's what this therapy, as you were mentioning in that example, is really allowing people to do. Heal, treat the cancer, heal, but live, continue to live as they do it. That's a novel concept that just doesn't exist today. No, and we forget that uh, even eating some things that apparently you are told don't eat them, they, it produces some joy. And that feeling of joy is a feeling that will contribute to your healing and to your health. But back to my father. Please His do. stubbornness <laughs> make him You're continue. stubborn just like your father. Get back to your father. Well, I have three genetic, two genetic uh, tons of uh, stubbornness. <laughs> uh, Get successively more stubborn as generations go? I think so. Okay. But, with me is the last uh, generation. Okay. Uh, so he continued to do. During his time, he uh, he practiced medicines from 1955 to the year 2000. He he could never stop. He knew the label he had. So he said, "Who cares? He didn't care. I'm helping. I'm helping patients. If the patient wants to come to me." because it's been referred by another patient that has been healed. Certainly not all patients can be healed. It's cancer. But, but sometimes a good result is when you make the patient wake up, have a cup of coffee, enjoy that, live a moment. That's a good outcome because we all are going to go away one day. That's right. But um, during that time, he continued to do that. He decided to set all this research, homemade research, and start to give away all these books that at the end of the 1990s, before the year 2000, the first thing that happened was someone in the U.S. government was interested in this procedure. 
And from there, many uh, doctors around the world started to know about IPT. And because many doctors found that many of their, their patients that are receiving just symptomatic therapy don't do well. Right. And we need to change that, the address that. That was also the goal of my father. Do not, he always said, if you only treat the symptom, the patient is going to uh, have a recurrence. You, we need to address, that's what our therapy with using insulin does. It addresses the root, it addresses the problem, because it's not the traditional uh, oncologists just give chemotherapy, which are good drugs. Uh, we just need to know how to use them better. Okay, so But in the concept of this protocol, it uses the primary drugs to destroy the problem, the secondary and the tertiary drugs to help recover, help heal, promote healing, promote repair, not only with cancer, with other diseases. The infection and um, most of, when we are born, we came out clean. We don't have an infection. We are protected during the nine months from infections. What happens if we get an infection while we are in the factory? We will have a disease. So infections are not something that uh, are normal. When we got an infection, it will end up making a problem in our life, a type of disease. We are not, in the cases of cancer, my father also described that. There are some bacterial infections that produce a certain type of breast tumor. There are cer certain viral infections that produce a certain type of uh, lymphatic uh, cancer. And the fungal infections also contribute to certain type of uh, tumors, solid tumors. So infections definitely play a role in disturbing the cell function that will end up altering the genetic code that it's inside of the nucleus and will end up producing a disease. You know, it's really interesting. I wasn't, I didn't have this in my notes for this, these uh, interviews, but you know, everybody talks about the microbiome in the gut and how that contributes to the immune system. And now we're starting to discover that there's a microbiome within the tumor microenvironment. And in fact, there are bacteria and viruses within cancer cells. And for example, bacteria within cancer cells contribute to some of the resistance that we see. Because when, when they get exposed to chemo agents, it, it hyper, it breaks it down very quickly and spits it out. So this, I think you're exactly correct. And I touched on this when we talked about infectious disease with your grandfather is that, you know, infection contributes to cancer. 20 to 25% of all diseases, all cancers are, are said to be caused by infection, viral, bacterial, you said fungal, and that's all correct. And when you look over the last three years, what have we, what's the world been dealing with? Infections. Infection. So the question is, what's that going to bring? More. More disease. More disease. More disease. But now we're, we're starting to understand, uh, understand, Dr. Garcia, is that it's not something that just impacts you us. You can call me Donato. Okay, Donato. Um, is it's going to impact our generations from us. Uh -huh. It's going to impact our legacy. So the legacy your grandfather brought to your father, and then in the next segment, we'll talk about the, the legacy passed on to you, and then where, where we hope that legacy leads. Maybe where that leads, Donato, is it takes us to the legacy of what the last three years is going to bring our future legacies, a hope of treatment. And it's almost like it may be coming full circle. Infection to cancer to cancer back to infection. So maybe the legacy here of history and where it's going to go in the future is that it's going to help our future legacies that what the last three years infection has brought because it's going to bring more disease. There's not any question about it. And I think it's going to bring more cancer. That's something we're already starting to see. Uh, because I think when you look at 
how research defines a cancer-causing virus. That virus, SARS-CoV-2, it checks every box. It checks every box. Now, it's not defined that way by the general con conventional community, but if you look at prior definitions of EBV, HPV, you know, cancer-causing viruses, I think it's going to, we're going to see that. So what, what, I'm, what I'm seeing is that the hope here is this treatment is going to be hope for legacies to come. Not just now, but legacies to come. So, you know, what I want to do in the next segment of this three-part series, so we did your grandfather. We went through the history and the contribution of your grandfather. Then your father and the stubbornness basically increased, you know, a hundredfold, generation by generation. But he disseminated the work, just not among doctors, but patients. And so really the movement moved globally. Canada, you US. went to many cities. Yeah, all At over one the world. time during the during the era of my father, when he was uh, alone, uh, we traveled to Europe. Yeah, uh, to pharmaceutical companies in Basel, uh, Switzerland, in uh, Frankfurt. Uh, we ended up also going to meet a famous uh, researcher in uh, Finland. Um, So your, father, your father took of, it global. Yes. He started to spread it to because of the pharmaceutical companies and because he was sending that to doctors. We even went to visit the director of the Pan American Medical Association. I was probably like 10 or 12. I remember seeing Central Park from the top of the building. And I remember my father was talking with this uh, American doctor about, he was very interested in incorporating the protocol. Yeah. Um, this doctor decided, I'm going to help you translate, but he later had a, a disease and could not continue to do that. Yes, my father started the spread of the word with patients from many parts, not also from Mexico, for, from many countries, because somebody had a friend or a relative, and they knew a doctor. <laughs> they knew, they, there you go, they knew, they a, knew doctor. a doctor. And they traveled to Mexico City. So join us for part three of this three-part series of the legacy of the Donato Perez Garcia family. And I'm going to tell you about a doctor I know <laughs> that's going to increase the stubbornness generationally. And we're going to talk about how The legacy your grandfather brought to your father, brought to you, and then we'll bring to you. We're going to talk about where that leads in the future. So thank you for joining us here in part two of a three-part segment with Dr. Donato Perez Garcia. And we will be joining him for part three, where we talk about his continuation of this legacy of IPT and where that's going to be leading us in the future. We'll be talking to you very soon. For more information, just like what we discussed today, I encourage you to follow us on YouTube as well as all of your favorite audio streaming platforms. And in there, we'll talk about all things related to healing, wellness, cancer, and much, much beyond because it doesn't just apply to cancer. Our goal here is to turn to healing, restore health, and promote your wellness. Whether that greatest obstacle to wellness being cancer or any other named disease, Our goal is your wellness. I'm Dr. Nathan Goodyear, and enjoy our future podcast at Practicing with Dr. Goodyear.